0: There are some English words that I think we use so often or just have an idea of what they really mean that we actually lose sight of where they came from and how they entered our language in the first place. The word that I'm thinking of tonight is martyr. A martyr. You probably have heard someone described as a martyr Um, in our Christian circles. We would think of that as someone who gave their lives for The Christian faith, they were killed on the profession or the confession of their faith. But martyr can go beyond that. Uh, Different faiths, different religions identify a martyr as someone who dies. And for that reason, I suspect if I were to ask many of you coming in tonight, uh, what does the word martyr mean? You would say, well, it means someone who dies. It dies for something. And that's, of course, true in the way that we use the word in English, the word martyr. But actually, the word martyr has a kind of different etymology. It has a, has a different underlying meaning in when it came into English. It comes from the Greek. And actually, it comes from a word that translated into English we heard tonight. Calvin Todd read for us. In Hebrews chapter 11... And verse 39, The Bible says this, "And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise." These all, speaking of these Old Testament believers that he was talking about in this, in this passage, they have obtained a good report. And the Greek word that is used there is martyreo, martyreo, martyr, martyr. The real meaning, the real idea behind a martyr is not someone who dies, but who in their death is testifying to something, is confessing or acknowledging something. Now that makes sense when you step back and think about it. What is a martyr doing? When someone says, deny Jesus or I will kill you. And he or she says, I will not kill me. They're testifying something. They are acknowledging something. Jesus is more important to me than life. It's a witness. They, if you will, are standing as if in a court of law, raising a right hand, swearing to tell the truth, and giving a witness, speaking something by their willingness to die for what they believe. They are a martyr. Now, really, if we understand what that concept of a martyr is, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that Hebrews 11 says, has this concept of martyr, and in fact, that word, martyreo, all over it. Because Hebrews 11 is about people who are witnesses, who are testifying. Now, in the month of October, for those of you who know my profession during the week as an attorney, uh, I was in a trial, I saw a lot of people getting up and putting their right hand in the air. And solemnly swearing to tell the truth, and then testifying. A, a witness involves two things in our courts of law. A witness involves generally someone who sees something. They are a witness to it. They witness it. But the, the second component of a witness is that they say something. You see, you witness it, and then you witness it. You say something. You testify about what you saw, and so the idea of Hebrews eleven of are of these people in this chapter that we call the, the 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 heroes of faith, the hall of faith, the great picture across the Old Testament. All these individuals in our Bible who who lived according to faith, men and women living out their faith in in what. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that these all, this portrait of faith that I've drawn you, these have obtained a good witness or a good testimony through faith. So think about that for a minute. There is something testifying to them. There is, just again, picture this. It's like they are on trial. And someone or something is getting up in that trial and testifying about them. And they're testifying good things. They have obtained a good testimony through faith. And I thought about that. Not only this week, but in recent weeks. About the testimony of faith that would be left behind for you. For me. The, The kind of testimony that my children are hearing by my example. And I'm also thinking about that, and probably many of you know, this last Thursday was the 10th anniversary of my father's passing, reflecting on the testimony that he left behind in this church and elsewhere. I was struck by the fact, my mother let me know that one of the men who helped found this church, Clay Thorson, the father of Dave Thorson, one of the founding elders of our church, passed, and his funeral is tomorrow. Another testimony of faith that we're called to remind ourselves of. And so tonight I want to use this passage in Hebrews 11 more broadly to preach on the subject I'm going to call a testimony of faith. A testimony of faith. And I want to look at very briefly the testimonies of faith that are contained in Hebrews chapter 11. And then talk about what kind of testimony we might be leaving behind. And we might be revealing in the way that we live. Is it truly a martyr's testimony? Oh, not in dying necessarily. But in the way that. We're living. And I want to look at this in three areas. I want to look first at what these individuals that are in Hebrews chapter 11 received. We're told that they received something. They obtained a good report. I want to look next at at how they received it. And again, we we see it right here in verse 39. They received it through faith. And then finally, I want to ask what we have received. And we are going to see that, I think, as we move in to chapter 12. So first of all, what did these individuals in Hebrews chapter 11 receive? Again, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. Now faith, it begins, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, notice again, let's go back to verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Now, in the immediate context, you're seeing, as Calvin Todd read for us, all these individual heroes of the Old Testament. If you'll start with me in verse 32, he says, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me. I wouldn't have enough time to tell of Gideon, and of, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith "...subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, the strangers, the invaders." women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. He goes on and on, concluding in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. He, he has in his mind these Old Testament heroes of faith, that, that if you held them up to the ordinary person that lived around them, you'd say, the world doesn't deserve them. That the person who lives with that kind of faith, who accomplishes that kind of tasks for God, it's as if they, we don't even deserve to walk among them. Heroes is, is what the author has in mind here. And notice he says that these heroes, not just the ones that are depicted in these last few verses I read, but all throughout the, the, the chapter here, chapter 11. They obtained a good report through faith. Now, notice what they obtained. They obtained a testimony. Just what I said, a martyreo, a witness, someone who sees something and someone who says something, testifies something. I want to take you back just a little bit in this chapter so we can see what this report really is really consists of. Go back to verse number one, will you? The very first verse of Hebrews chapter 11. And notice where it begins. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by what? By faith, the elders obtained a good report. You say, who are these elders? He's simply meaning the the Old Testament Jews. Again, this is a book written to Jewish people. It was written to the Hebrews. And the whole idea of the book of Hebrews is to people who were under pressure because they were following Jesus as their Messiah. They were getting persecuted by their Jewish friends and perhaps family and neighbors who were saying, you're abandoning the customs. You're abandoning our heritage. You're abandoning your life as a Jew and following Jesus. What are you doing? And they're getting pressure. And the author of Hebrews is telling them throughout this whole book, don't go back. Jesus is the end of of your heritage as a Jew. What I mean by that is, he is what you've been looking for. He is what the Jewish people have been looking for. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. And in fact, he has brought about a better covenant. He's brought about better promises. He's brought about better words of comfort to you. And so stand on Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Don't let him go. Don't go back to a life without Jesus. He's charging them to keep on going. And he says that what they need is faith. In fact, if you see it here in in verse 38 of chapter 10, right before these verses I just read, he says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Quoting the Old Testament. He says, What you need is faith, but we are not, he says, of them who draw back unto perdition, unto destruction but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He says, I, you are of them that believe. And then he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. He is going to show them that their Old Testament heroes walked by faith just like they need to now. They didn't rely on some other principle to approach God. They relied in walking with God on faith, on what they couldn't see. And he says, it's the same thing for you. You need the same thing. You need to rely in your relationship with God, not on what you can see, but on what you can't see. That's faith. Now, notice this idea. He says, by faith, these elders, these Old Testament heroes, obtained a good witness. They received a good testimony about their life, about their efforts. And and we should ask ourselves, who did they they receive this testimony from? And if you'll you'll look in Hebrews 11, they received it from God. Look at verse 4, will you? By faith, Abel. We're going way back to the beginning, right? Right? In early in Genesis, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained, what's that next word? Witness. You guess what Greek word that is? Martireo. He obtained witness. He obtained a testimony. That he was righteous. Who testified of his gifts? Look, who testified of his gifts? God did. God was testifying of him. Now, can you, can you believe that? Just think about that for a minute. He's saying it was God himself who, if you will, got on the witness stand, raised his right hand, and said, I approve of that man. I approve of him. Can you imagine God saying that about you? Can you imagine God testifying about you and your life and saying, that one pleases me? That one right there, she does. God testified of his gifts. And notice what it says. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. So Abel is dead. Why? He was murdered by his brother Cain. And now the author of Hebrews is saying God was the one testifying of him. He gave him a good testimony of his gifts. His gifts pleased God. And why? And now by that, Abel is dead, but he is still speaking. He is still testifying. You see that? He is a witness now. He is speaking something. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And this is the Genesis account of Enoch being literally taken to heaven. Without dying. And was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this. What's that next word? Testimony. What do you think word that is? Martirel. This witness. What witness? That he pleased God. God testified that Enoch pleased him. Okay, you see the idea. There's a report, there's a testimony, there's a witness. Someone is giving witness about these heroes of faith and who is testifying of them. God is testifying of them that they please Him. And look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You have to have faith. In order to receive God's testimony to you that you please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to receive that witness from Him. And you could go on. Go on through the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 with all these great heroes that are held up and exemplified for us. What is the common denominator? God is testifying that they please Him. That is the witness. What they received was a good testimony. Let's look secondly at how they received it. They received it through faith. This is what it says, verse 39. And these all having obtained this good report, this good testimony through faith. Now we need to stop back and think about this for a minute. What does it mean that they received this testimony through faith? Well, what was their faith? Their faith was... Something they couldn't see. And in fact, that's where this whole passage started. Now, faith, verse 1 of this chapter, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They were looking for something they couldn't see. And in fact, verse 9 has this idea about Abraham. By faith, he sojourned, he lived in the land of promise, the promised land, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for something. He couldn't see it. He was a stranger, living in a strange land, that promised land. It wasn't even his All he knew was that God had promised it to him. Sometime in his descendants, sometime in the future. And so, he looked for it. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It was almost as if they had out their telescope and they were looking way, way, way out into the future and they saw these things way afar off. They weren't experiencing them. It was faith that was seeing them. Faith was the telescope looking out into the future, seeing God's promises come to fulfillment even though they weren't seeing it with their human eyes yet. You see, there's something important that we need to recognize about faith. Oftentimes, I think when we think of faith, we use the example of a chair, and I'm going to show this to you. You probably have seen this image, this illustration of what faith is. We say, what is faith? Faith is trust, and faith is trust. Faith is looking at the chair and sitting down on the chair so that all my weight is resting on the chair i am trusting the chair completely right now if this chair gave out i would very embarrassingly collapse in front of you onto the floor i am putting all my trust in the chair and if i am standing and looking at the chair i can say i believe that that chair would hold me but am i trusting in the chair while i'm standing here my weight is on my two feet I do not place my faith in that chair until I go and I sit in it. And now I'm believing in the chair. I'm trusting in the chair because all my weight is here. That's faith. But do you know there's something even before I sit down that faith is? Faith is not only trust. Faith is what I see about the chair. What would make me go sit down on that chair in the first place? what I perceive about the chair. Well, this looks like a sturdy chair. I've sat on chairs that are like this before. It seems like it has a good metal frame, and it seems like it has a good rubber bottom that will hold me. I think this chair will work. And so I look at the chair, and I see the chair, and I perceive that the chair can hold me, and then I go and I sit on it, and now I'm trusting on it. You see, faith is not, is, is seeing something... And then faith is resting on something, trusting something. That's faith. You see, why why is that important? Because the faith that is here held out for us in Hebrews 11 is a faith that saw something before it trusted it. It was something that heard the promise of God and it was convinced of it and that was what enabled them to trust it. Hebrews chapter 11 begins verse 2, for verse 3, I'm said, sorry, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Not one of us was around for the creation of the world. Not one of us saw it with these eyes. But what do we see? the fact of God's creation of the universe with with the eyes of faith. We see it, and we believe it. That's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things not seen. And the reality is, friends, this kind of capacity is all around us. All around us, people believe in things that they can't see, and order their lives according to it the person who devotes their entire life to winning an olympic gold medal they have not seen, if you will, that gold medal. They've not experienced it. They've never touched it. They've never bitten it. They've never, they've never won that gold medal. And yet they give everything to something they can't yet see that is way in the future. And for years and years and years, they changed their life entirely to get that gold medal. And what is it? It's simply an echo of the faith that God calls you and I to. It's faith. It's not faith in the eternal God and in his, his eternal promises. But it's nonetheless this kind of echo, this capacity that we have. They have a firm conviction of things they have not and cannot see. Now, this isn't unreasonable. Faith is not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to have a conviction in something that you cannot see C.S. Lewis famously said, he said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I find that entirely reasonable. If there's a desire in me that I can't find anywhere else to satisfy other than in God and his promises, I can conclude I must be made for something else than for this world. It's not, unreasonable, it's not unreasonable to believe and to con- be cons- persuaded of something that you cannot see. But nonetheless, it is exactly that. What you cannot see. How did they receive it? They received it through faith. And how else did they receive it? They received it by action. Now, again... We're we're kind of skimming at a high level over the text of Hebrews chapter 11, and it might be a good thing for you on your own to go back and read it tonight and compare what we're saying here against that. But I just, if you were to go through and read Hebrews 11, you would see that there's a common a common uh, uh, a textual uh, kind of flow to the to the thought. It says something like this: By faith, this person did this. Notice verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God. By faith, he acted. If you see verse 7. By faith, Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By faith, Noah did something. By faith, Abraham obeyed. They acted on their faith. And this is just the, the, the essential of what faith is. When faith sees something and is convinced of it, faith does something. And it's a whole nother sermon, but if you want to understand James chapter 2, why James says that faith without works is dead, being alone, that's simply the explanation. When, if faith sees something, faith acts on it. And if faith doesn't act on anything, it's not real faith. Because faith, by its very essence, is seeing something and being persuaded of it, and therefore relying on it, trusting it, and pursuing it. So each of these people, how did these people obtain a testimony from God? How did they obtain a good testimony from God? By seeing something by faith and then by acting on it. And not just acting on it, acting on it in the face of external or internal conflict. Again, what is the very idea that comes over and over again in Hebrews chapter 11? These people suffered. These people had hard lives. These people faced appalling difficulties. I mean, look at what he says. He says in... Verse number 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. What did their faith cause them to do? To be tortured. That word there has the idea from which we get our word timpani, like the timpani drum that you might see in a, in, a, in, a, in a symphony orchestra. Boom, 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 boom. You know what timpani is? It's, it's a piece of membrane stretched very, 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 very tight and beaten. And that very word, that very word in the Greek has the idea of their torturing of being stretched very tight and beaten like a drum. These people who received a good testimony from God by faith, they were tortured. What else do, do we see? They they uh, they had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings yea moreover of bonds and imprisonment they were thrown in jail they were they were tied up they were stoned they were they were sawn asunder sawn in half you say who is was that there is a jewish tradition that isaiah the great prophet of the old testament was sawn in half by a wicked king what else They were tempted, they were slain, they were killed with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were like strangers and pilgrims. They were destitute, they were afflicted, they were tormented. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good testimony, a good report through faith, they received it in the face of incredible, appalling difficulty. And suffering. God was testifying. These people please me. By the way, can I just pause and say, if you're suffering tonight, it does not mean that God is not pleased with you. It does not mean that. In fact, these people in Hebrews 11 tell that story. People who were suffering the greatest and most intensive difficulties, and God, meanwhile, was testifying to them, you please me by your faith. First John 5 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. These people pleased God by their faith that acted in the face of appalling difficulty and conflict and overcame in their own way the persecution and affliction of those around them. So again... What did they receive? They received God's stamp of approval. They received his testimony of his pleasure with them, a good testimony. How did they receive it? They received it through faith that saw something, God's promise to them. They trusted what God had said, and they lived their lives in accordance to to it. They said, I believe that, and in the face of this appalling suffering, I'm going to hold to it, and I'm going to live my life according to it. And finally, what I want to look at here as we close tonight is what we have received. What have we received? Now, again, go back to verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Now, now think about what he's saying there. These people were martyred these people suffered. These people wandered about like pilgrims on the earth. And what did they get? Not the promise. Now, you need to think, we need to think for a moment, what is this promise? What is the promise? You know, this passage all ties together when you read the Bible in context when we just stick to our chapter divisions and I read chapter 11 today and I read chapter 12 tomorrow and I never think back how chapter 12 relates to chapter 11, relates to chapter 10, we're never going to make these connections. What is the promise? Chapter 10 tells you. Listen to chapter 10 and verse 36. The author of Hebrews says to them, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Okay, well, so we can receive a promise, but you still haven't, we still don't know what that is. We'll keep on going. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Who do you think that's talking about? Jesus? Jesus returning? What is our promise? It's connected to Jesus returning. Now go back one more chapter, and it'll get even more clear. Chapter number 9 and verse 15. And for this cause, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called, that's us, might receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. What's the promise? Eternal life. Not just eternal life dwelling with Christ, the eternal kingdom that was promised and will be coming to pass at the return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns to set up his kingdom in which all of us will be apart from the Old Testament saint to the New Testament state until the very day that Jesus returns, we all in that kingdom. That's what the, that's what the author is saying. He's saying, they didn't receive the promise. Why? Because that promise was something that could only be brought to pass and consummated in Jesus Christ. That was the only thing. And notice what he goes on to say. He says at the end of verse, verse 40, he says, God, they received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They, apart from us, should not be made complete. In other words, they needed us. They needed those following Jesus Christ. They were before Jesus, looking ahead to the work of Jesus, looking forward to the Messiah in whom they would be saved, just like us. And now we are all awaiting that future promise, the promise of God's kingdom being established in a new heaven and a new earth in the person of Jesus Christ. They did not receive the promise. And friends, you and I have not yet either. We have not yet received that promise that is in Jesus Christ. Now, what is wonderful about this, I think, is what it says to us of what we have received. They didn't receive the promise. They needed us to be made complete. We're all waiting for that final consummation of God's promises to His people. And what does that mean for us? The first thing that means for us is that we have received this most compelling connection When we read our Old Testaments, we're reading people that are our forebearers, if you will, that are our people of faith, that are our followers of God. It's like we're family. You know how powerful a heritage is? Something that we stand in? In, in your Christmas celebrations coming up, you, you might be doing things based on a, a family heritage that goes back generations. Well, my grandpa did it like this. My great-grandpa did it like this. I, I saw again, I was reminded this week, of, of this wonderful, sweet old story. In 2016, something happened that hadn't happened for 108 years. In 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. For the first time since 1908. And given that length of time. All these families were developing these plans of what to do when the Chicago Cubs finally got back to the World Series. It's like you Vikings fans out there, you can keep on making plans. I don't think it's ever gonna happen. So don't worry about that, them winning a Super Bowl. But in any event, these Chicago Cubs, and there's this wonderful, sweet story. This this man died of cancer in 1980. Think about that, 1980. And his son, back in whenever this occurred, And his father had a discussion, and they said, when the Cubs are back in the World Series, we're going to listen to it together. We're going to listen to that game together. And when it came to Game 7 of the World Series in 2016, that man, now 68 years old and living in North Carolina, got in his car and drove 650 miles to his father's cemetery in Indianapolis, Indiana, and listened to the game sitting at the cemetery at his father's gravesite and celebrating the Chicago Cubs winning a World Series. A very, just a very sweet story, right? Like very, very, very nice. But what did that man feel? He felt a heritage. He felt a connection. And what this author is saying is, you have that connection. They are are relying on you and on you passing on this heritage of faith and and your reliance on Jesus Christ. But not only that, look at at chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this picture is such a wonderful picture, isn't it? We are, we are compassed. We are surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. Guess which Greek word that comes from. It's actually the Greek word martus, connected to marturion. Now, again, a witness does two things. A witness might see something. You witness it. Or a witness might say something. And, and there's a picture here, maybe you've heard before, of, of those who have gone before onto heaven, gathering around like race, watching the people who are running. They're watching us. They're leaning over the, ballast, the, 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 the banister of heaven, just watching us. It's not that I think that couldn't be the case, but I don't think this passage actually supports it. Because I think the whole idea of this context is that these people are not seeing something, they're saying something. They're, they're testifying of something. They're, they're speaking something. So, so I interpret this verse as these individuals being the ones who are testifying to us by their lives of the faithfulness of God. That his promises are worth living and dying for. That, 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 that what, what we can't see is worth living for if it's connected to the promises of God. And notice then how this whole passage ties together. He's saying these people have gotten God's testimony to them, and now after death, they, like Abel, are still speaking. They're testifying. They're witnessing about a life of faith that it's worth it, that it's worth pursuing. And then he says, see, you all here, you, you all here at Straight Gate Church, Because you're surrounded by this testimony of people uh, uh, who are testifying to you, you keep on going. You endure. You persevere. You run with endurance the race that is set before you. Your race is different than my race. Your race is different than your race. You might never be called to die for the name of Jesus Christ. You may, not be, you may not be called to be sawn in half, thank God. You may not be called to be tortured like they were, but you have a race and I have a race. And so he says, because the, these, these, these witnesses are telling you, keep on going, keep on doing it. And there, then he says, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What do we receive ultimately from these witnesses? Clearly, we receive motivation to keep on going. Motivation to endure whatever suffering you're going through right now. To endure whatever hardship is in front of you. Because you see a promise of God for eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. And you say, I'm living for that. I'm not living for everything I can see around me. Now, all of that was really just laying the groundwork for a question that's been bouncing through my head and that I'm hoping will be bouncing through your head. Really, there's, there's two questions. Here's the first one. Every day... We are obtaining, we are receiving a testimony through our words and actions of what we see, what we value, and what we truly believe. What is your testimony? What is the testimony that you are receiving from God by the way you're living your life? I want you to think about that. These people obtained, they received a testimony. Now, if, if, if you could... Take every hour of the week, and we were to examine how you used your time last week. What kind of testimony would that give about your life of faith? About what you see as most valuable in life? About what entertains you? About you, what you really are investing in above all else? That's the testimony that you're receiving. The author of Hebrews says, See, look at all these people in Hebrews 11. You want to know what their testimony was? They were living for something they couldn't see. What about you? What testimony are you receiving from God by your words and actions? What do they say about your faith? But there's another question. Every day, we are leaving behind a testimony the same kind of testimony. We are leaving behind that testimony for others to see. Our children, our grandchildren, our church, fellow church members, our people in our neighborhood and work and school, we're leaving behind that testimony. And my second question for you tonight is, what testimony are you leaving behind? Tabitha and I were talking about this recently. How are we going to leave behind to our children a testimony that we were living by faith. That what we were really living for was not stuff that we could see or that could get stuffed into a bank account or that could be put in a 401k or that could be invested in a house or a car or a night's nice vacation. How are we going to leave behind a legacy to our children that what we were really living for was something we could never see? We could only see with the eyes of faith. You see we should step back and think about the examples of faith that have been left behind for us. As we enter into the 45th year of Straight Gate Church, we should think back to the legacy of those who by faith stepped out and based on what they couldn't see, decided to put in place many of the benefits and blessings that we have now received. Men like my father, men like Clay Thorson, men like men and women throughout the last 45 years that have left behind a legacy of faith. So friends, when we read through Hebrews chapter 11 and when we see the witnesses that have surrounded us and continue to surround us today, may we ask ourselves, what kind of testimony. Am I receiving from God by the way I live my life? By what I live for, what I value? And what kind of testimony am I leaving behind? If my children were to look at the way I acted, if my children or or my friends were truly to examine what I value in life, would they see this kind of Hebrews 11 testimony of living for what you can't see, living based on the promises of God, living a life that even embraces suffering and discomfort when it is for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. These these men and women obtained a good testimony. And may we not only obtain that testimony, may we leave it behind for those who will come after us.